electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today, BlackRock's $6 trillion man. Who is Larry Fink? The world's largest money manager finally hits the big time as a Jeopardy clue. The French economist behind Elizabeth Warren's tax plan. These are the best estimates we think, but they could be improved. Defending the details of a plan that's high on taxes. Jeff Bezos's lofty goals are long in the making. You quote his high school girlfriend saying the reason he wants to make all this money is so that he can go to space. Right. The author of a new profile on the Amazon leader's master plan. We've got those stories and much more from LeBron to whatever's in the phone booths at WeWork. These ones have formaldehyde in them? Uh, supposedly. Awesome. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Tuesday, October 15th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Let's talk about LeBron James. Can we do that? Yes. Because that's a serious thing this morning. Yeah, okay. Uh, LeBron James had some choice words for Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey, uh, asked about the NBA's ongoing dispute with China. The star player said he believes Morey was either misinformed or not really educated on the situation. James was praised on social media in China for the comments, as you might imagine. But guess what? He was criticized deeply right here in the United States with some tweeting emoji bags of money at him. LeBron then followed up on Twitter saying, I do not believe there was any consideration for the consequences and ramifications of the tweet. I'm not discussing the substance. Others can talk about that. He continued a second tweet. My team in this league just went through a very difficult week. And I think people need to understand what a tweet or statement uh, can do to others. And I believe nobody stopped and considered what could happen, uh, could or I'm sorry, what would happen, could have waited a week to send it. So part of what he's suggesting there is had Maury sent this a week after I think they and others were out of the country, when the NBA was out of the country, that maybe it would have been okay. The the other thing I'll say is that if you read into the reporting on this, LeBron got up uh, last week in China in a meeting with the NBA and with the players who were there and said, wait a second, you want us to go out and talk about this, and you all haven't even put out a comprehensive statement yourself. You shouldn't be asking us to speak on this behalf until you've come up with your plan, and we have kind of a coordinated effort. And I can understand that feeling, like you kind of got hung out to dry on some of this, and the league is well, saying, he, you he go also, out and deal with this. He's saying, thank you, Adam Silver, for being so thoughtful about your response, whereas Ted Cruz or other people we've had on the show said, you know, Adam Silver, you were so obsequious and... and um, but think about who was working for who. Or whom. Adam works for LeBron. And the money involved. Um, no, but, the, but, 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 to but appe- LeBron to some degree works for Adam. Yeah, but to appease the CCP is, is No, is I understand really that. That's bad. what I'm saying. Yes. 
In a world without money, which there is no such thing, in a world without money, you would never do that. You would never. It's what I'm saying so is clear LeBron, exactly what LeBron Le- is talking about. But LeBron's there. doing it right there. Yeah, I know, but it's so clear Steve what Kerr's it's about. Doing and I'm not saying Steph that Curry's companies doing don't, it. Right, pop of, I, all of them. I know, I understand, and I understand they how the world works. They all have a lot of contracts, but I, I, I do think the league could have orchestrated a better response. still have a little hint of cynicism about how everything. And it's corporations and everything else. It's all money. A hundred percent. MBS. Hey, got our arm around him now. I mean, it's sure, it's but then you, but then you got to call out everybody. That's part of the issue. Yeah. I'm not saying not to. I'm saying yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but right. then, then I don't know. The NBA is in a uh, tough spot. Better in the target. 550 million fans in one at country. least. Right. Um, but yeah, this is the world that we now live in. This and, multinational and, and, and world. And How taking, do you? But if you're an American company, do you stand up and say America first? And, and you shouldn't take any. In? You know, Schadenfreude that the wokest of the woke leagues suddenly kind of got bitten in the rear end by their wokeness. But see, you are. I and said so I would never take it. I said no one should. You heard me. I said no Look, one should. There were. Did I say no one should take anything? You said nobody should, but there were people who have said to him, I know. you know the quote, shut up and dribble. I knew. Yeah. Right? I, knew. I mean, that's the other side of this. It, or... You could say shut up and act to the ones in Hollywood. I mean, it, whatever you want. I'm not, shut up no, and read I, the prompter. Shut up and read the prompter <laughs> is what I'd say to you right I'm, now. I'm Let's get out of here. I'm not, not saying shut up. I know because I'm you're saying, very woke. I know that. No, so I, what, you're woke. Read the prompter. An update on the WeWork saga. There's a new report out, but I can tell you about based on some of the sources that I've spoken to uh, in the last 24 hours that uh, there is now a major fight going on inside WeWork about which way to lean in terms of uh, the potential next step. And there are many inside that are leaning towards a $5 billion financing uh, effort that would be led by J.P. Morgan, rather than selling a controlling stake to SoftBank. Uh, Shares of SoftBank rose on that report, by the way, uh, that Bloomberg put out, suggesting that actually uh, J.P. Morgan would be would be the one uh, would be the offer that would be taken. Why? What, I mean, I guess the point is the people internally would lose their their stake, would lose their controlling. It's going to dilute. It, it, it'd be, it dilutes everybody else's. It's it, by default. If, Sof, if SoftBank comes in and takes control, everybody else gets get, pushed out. Gets, gets pushed out. The question is. But SoftBank already has thirty percent, so they have a major right. vote at the table to see what happens. It, it, uh, it's all that depends on who gets washed out where. Who gets washed out where? That's yeah. really the question. Right. Who gets washed out where? And whether you, if you take the JPM deal, there's a high risk involved, right? Will, there, will they be able to pay the debt back? Right. Um, how is that whole thing going to be How is that structured? still being put together? J.P. Morgan's on the hook for all of it? That... Well, that's the other thing. This isn't J.P. Morgan's balance sheet. J.P. Morgan's going to go out and market this to other investors. Because there are other investors who seem like they'd be hot to try to get into this right now after the IPO as a, as a uh, On the debt side, potentially. You, you're smiling with a sort of cynical, cynical grin. <laughs> uh, you were saying which way they're going to... I think lean forward. They can't do... That's taken, isn't it? Yes. Think, uh, okay. It is. All right. So but, they can't... Is it still taken? network, I think. Do they still use that? I don't know. Never understood. I, I, I was always sort of trying it's to understand. It's better than leaning back. Get out yeah, of the way. But you got to lean in if you're Sheryl you Sandberg, right? right? Um, okay. Separately, the Guardian newspaper reporting that WeWork is expected to lay off at least 2,000 people just this week. That would be about 13% of the staff employees reportedly told the Guardian that little to no work is getting done. And the new projects that we work have been put on hold. And then there's another new headache for the company as well. It closed about 2,300 phone booths at its sites in the U.S. and Canada after it discovered elevated levels of a carcinogen. The phone booths are uh, quiet, private places for people to make calls in shared workspaces. For those of you 
who have not been densified yet. Uh, we work notified. You know, that's what they're calling it. Densified? Densification. So people are going from multiple floors to less floors, but open plan. And then they do these kind of little phone booths. Yeah, I've seen them all over the place. That's the euphemism. Anyway, these we were, ones have formaldehyde in them? Uh, supposedly, uh, formaldehyde has been found. We were awesome. notified tenants that elevated levels of formaldehyde have been linked to cancer. If there's long term exposure, declined to comment on the cost of replacing those phone booths. How did so, that happen? It was just made somewhere that. This this part I do, I do not know. I, read this I can tell you about the financing. I can't tell you it's about like the formal landing on this company on top of everything else that, are, that right. it's dealing with right now. But think there are people who spend lots of times in those phone booths. Really? Yeah. Superman. No, not <laughs> actually. Superman. He doesn't spend a lot of time. He's uh, he's going to be on today. Uh, Robert Frank. With, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> Earnings just coming in from BlackRock, and it looks like they earned $7.15 a share. That's better than the street was anticipating. And as of the end of the third quarter, this is a company that has $6.964 trillion in assets under management, and which was alluded to. This company's, this company's CEO will join us live in a few minutes for an extended interview. Who is Larry Fink? Larry Thank Fink. You. There he is. <laughs> Thank you. And for those apparently of you who weren't watching Jeopardy last night, we'll pull you into a little live. more of this. Were you really watching live? I was live? really watching live. Actually, it might have been five minutes delayed. We, yeah. we, we do scroll through some of the... We don't like to hear about... Uh, you know, they're not there that long. If they're going to be there, if it's going to be a James, uh, Jeopardy James or something like that, we, we listen the to their stories. Day. But we don't want to get too attached to them. Because just show me the numbers. They, just, uh, they, let's get, the numbers. Because they talk a lot. Alex asks them these, these, in, these inane questions uh, oh. and they answer. Yeah. Uh, but and the first guy was really, wrong. Right? The first guy... Oh, really? BLK, what is it? What it was kind think? of funny because I, I had to chuckle. It was a $7 trillion in assets company, and the symbol was BLK. And uh, the first guy that answered said, who is H&R Block? Buck. Oh, and, and so I was that's thinking, just an answer for somebody who's not on Wall Street. Right. Considering what we pay in taxes, $7 trillion would be small for, what, <laughs> uh, for the tax preparation. That it, they don't hold the assets for long, right, Andrew? But they may be Were involved. Were you excited screaming at the screen like, I know it, I know it, I know it? Actually, I was pretty sure if it was a really great company, I was pretty sure it was Blackstone. Oh, no, don't. don't <laughs> I'm kidding, Larry. I'll take the world's largest money manager for $6.9 trillion. BlackRock's chairman and CEO, Larry Fink, joined Squawk Box today for an extended discussion. Here on the podcast, we've teased out the highlights. Here's Andrew. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was the IPO market and what that may say about the larger market. Um, obviously, this WeWorks deal that hasn't, uh, the WeWorks IPO that, that wasn't, if you will, has, has the bell rung on the IPO market? What's happening here? I think what the bell say uh, about where we are. I don't, I'm not, it really says nothing about the IPO market. It says something about the private growth valuations. Okay. I think that's a, the bigger issue. I, I, this is why I believe in public markets. The public markets, it's harder to hide. Um, reality is shown every three months, and this is why having that public exposure and transparency is the best outcome for all companies to continue. One of the things that's so interesting is firms like BlackRock, which historically invested solely in the public markets, now some public, typically what might be described as public market investors are getting access through some of your funds to private markets. That's true. How should they think about that? Especially when you have situations like an Uber which in the private market was valued one way and all of a sudden comes into the public market and falls. It's a wake-up call for these private valuations. I mean, there was certainly way too much money flooding into the private growth valuations. And I think there's a, it's, a, it's being reset. There was a mantra about growth at all costs. 
First of all, and, and I actually believe that is a bad culture that these companies are persisting, because if you don't set a culture of building a company, long-term profitability, having a culture of only growth at all costs really produces bad outcomes in the long run. And, and I really do believe this reset in the private growth valuations, hopefully the valuations are going to be more about the real operating um, concern. And so I think there's going to be a big reset on these valuations. But what do you tell then your managers who've been buying into the private markets? Do you send to lighten up? Let's be more cautious, change our approach? I think everybody, our investors and every investor, needs to change their approach. They need to be much more thoughtful about when companies can, uh, can make profits. And are these companies real or are they just being sustained by private capital? So I believe this dovetails into everything that goes on related to being a public company. Uh, you know, there was this mantra, private companies were staying private longer. I think that's a bad outcome. I think you should be going public sooner, being part of it, to try to, to respond to that transparency. This is why I've been repeating this, the whole mantra of transparency is a, is a right. very good ingredient to build a But you don't think this is a sign or a signal of something larger in the economy or in the, in the market writ large? Do people say this is, are we, in, are we in 2000 or 2001 or is this 99? Or, because people sort of look at these things as economic indicators. I think, it's, again, it's another negative. But that negative, I don't think it's that um, that will carry on throughout the whole economy. You know, it's, it is a negative, but I believe it's, it can be moderated very quickly through this process. Um, and, I, and I do believe this is not something that's going to be systemic, but it is a problem. And Larry, you can make the, the point that it's cheap, that cheap money is everywhere. And it's just another example of cheap well, money. Negative interest rates and low you know interest I mean? rates, we're going to see. Well, this is the malinvestment, perhaps, that everyone's worried about. And if we could be at the front end of figuring out where all the other malinvestment is, couldn't we? No, I totally agree. It sounded to me like you thought the market was not overvalued here, though, that you think that there are a lot of good things that are happening out there and the market's not necessarily reflecting that. Am, am I, I wrong to... I, the market is, is properly valued overall. I don't see that many extremes. Uh, and that's because the central banks are going to be highly accommodative, at least for the coming year. What I worry about is more of 2021, um, after the elections... Uh, and where is the economy thereafter? Are you a banker that has Warren phobia or not? I don't have. Right now, I have paid very little attention to the politics right now. Who are you, Steve Kerr? Ask about China. You, you, you haven't thought about Elizabeth. No, I have You have no idea Elizabeth Warren might be president and you run the largest asset I, manager in the world. Right it hasn't even occurred no, to you. No, I am not paying attention. You haven't even thought about it. Have, have not, you heard of her? Not much. I haven't. Okay. Um, All right, Steve. <laughs> it's like you may question that, but I really you really haven't thought about what not yet. Don't, your shareholders might appreciate it if you gave it some thought about whether I, there's a war in presidency. Election, I promise you, I will. Oh, but until we see who are the candidates okay. and what they really stand for after the primaries, I'll pay a lot more attention. Okay. Okay. Sorry, you didn't like that answer. I, no, I don't. I, I, I don't care. The debates tonight. I don't care. He will not be watching the debates tonight. Okay. He's watching Jeopardy. Cheese will be next. 
Next on Squawk Pod, Elizabeth Warren has a tax plan for that. We'll hear from one of the French economists behind the presidential candidate's tax the rich proposals. The top optimal rate for taxing the very rich is 60%, 75%. For the top 1%, at least, no, 60%. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Joe Kern. Stand Joe by in three, two, one, two, Joe. Two economists have emerged as some of the most important influencers in the Democratic campaign. They've helped Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders create their wealth taxes. And Robert Frank joins us with uh, the story, uh, which we've talked about before. Yes, and now we have uh, them in the flesh here on set. Uh, Mm -hmm. They are the new economic architects of taxing the rich, the two most important economists in the Democratic race. Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zuckman helped Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders create both of their wealth taxes. Now, Warren's plan would tax the wealth of more than $50 million at 2%, wealth of a billion or more at 3%. Sanders' plan would include rates as high as 8%. They say that under Sanders' plan, the 400 richest Americans could have an effective tax rate of more than 97% on their income. Now, in a new book out today, Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay More, the two professors at the University of California, Berkeley, propose a three-part approach to reducing inequality. First, they would double corporate tax revenues, raising also raising the tap, uh, income tax rate to 60% and the wealth tax of up to 3.5% for billionaires. Now, the current tax code, they say, looks like the tax system of a plutocracy. The wealthy will keep accumulating with hardly any barrier, along with their power and ability to shape policymaking and government for their own benefit. Now, they also launched a website called taxjusticenow.org. That allows you to plug in different tax rates for the rich and see how they affect revenues and tax rates for every other group. They have faced some criticism for their calculations and data. Former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers called their revenue estimates for the wealth tax disingenuous and naive. And we'll have them here to talk about it. Gabriel, welcome. There's... There was an article that was posted, actually it was on the op-ed pages of the New York Times. And in this case, there was no, what normally would happen, there'd be a working paper that that you would, a research paper that would lay out how you arrived at some of these numbers, and you didn't do that. You went, I'm wondering why you went straight to an opinion section where people couldn't figure out how you did the numbers. And I'm also wondering how you got some of the numbers, because you do 2018, and those numbers aren't even available yet from the IRS. So there's got to be a lot of assumptions that go into your calculations, which could make them wrong, basically. Well, yeah, thank, first, thanks so much for, for having me. And uh-huh. second, all the data, all the programs, all the computer code, all the technical appendices of our work are online now. on taxjusticenow.org. Okay. And everything is explained in the book. And all of this is based on the research that we've developed, my co-author Emmanuel says, and I, over the last two decades. So it's based on a lot of rigorous uh, you know, scientific research, but... You know, no data series is definitive. Gabriel, These are the best estimates the CBO, we think, but the CBO has, but they could be improved. Can we talk more broadly about the issue of taxing the wealthy? Do you think there should be a maximum income or a maximum wealth in America? 
you know, that, that idea has a long history you know, in, uh, in U.S. society. You have to realize that the United States invented sharply progressive income and wealth taxation with top marginal income tax rates of more than 90% in the post-World War II decades, top estate tax rates of close to 80% you know, from the 1930s to 1980s. That's a U.S. invention. That's not a European invention. No continental European country ever had such top marginal so income what would tax you, what, rates. What's your, what's your personal answer to that question? No, the, the answer is... Extreme Would you go back wealth, to that? What we explain in the book is, you know, uh, extreme wealth concentration is corrosive. Okay. And so, and so, you, and you so want to, what's, what's the upper limit then for you? Uh, that's not something for economists to decide. Let me ask, you, this, so, okay, then let me ask you a separate question, if, if you'd indulge me for a yeah, second. Because sure. you, you've, you've helped design effectively the Elizabeth Warren plan, mm-hmm. and there's lots of questions about how you could effectuate a plan like that. The biggest issue, of course, is how are, how are people not going, or how is that kind of plan not going to be gamed by people? And, and effectively, how would you, on an annual basis, effectively value each individual's um, mm-hmm. total net worth at any time? By the way, I don't know what you would do with you know, Michael Jordan's brand on any given year uh, or, or, frankly, Donald Trump's mm-hmm. brand, given some of the valuations he's... Yeah. Uh, get, but, I mean, how you yeah, would actually so that, do that. So... 70, 80% of the wealth of the top 0.1% is in listed securities, listed equities, bonds, mutual fund shares. 30, 30, 20% is in unlisted equities. In that case, we have a solution. We are saying, first, the IRS should come up with the best valuation possible. And if the taxpayers disagree, they can pay in kind with shares. So if the wealth tax rate is 3%, they give 3% of their shares to the so IRS. The government and then would the become... IRS sells the shares on a market and creates the market that's missing. See, this was a, a, an explosive proposal in the book. I don't think people have focused on it yet. You're saying that the government would become a part owner of these private companies that, where there's a disagreement and then try to resell those shares on some kind resell. of auction So market. the point is not for the government to own shares. It's yeah. to resell immediately, but to create the market value that's missing. That's, you know, a service that the IRS could, could and, and you find that the top optimal rate for taxing the very rich is... 60%, 75%? On the Laffer curve, where do you find the optimal rate for taxing the rich? You know, the, the, the revenue maximizing tax rate for the top 1% is uh, at least you know, 60% in terms of average effective tax rate. But in reality, it depends on enforcement. You know, governments can choose to make taxes fail, right. and we've seen a lot of what that, or they can with, choose to make taxes What would you do work. with philanthropy? What would you do, what would you do with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett? No, that's a, that's a good question. That's a debate that, that, that you know, to, to have. We don't talk a lot about that in the book. You could have a wealth tax, you know, uh, for foundations, especially for foundations that are controlled by, uh, you know, living uh, individuals, by their founders, to prevent, you know, tax avoidance, people moving money to their foundations. You know, that's, that's sometimes money to be discussed. Away to avoid taxes? No, people are giving money away. You have to pay, you know, gift okay. taxes. And if you give to a, to a Gabriel, charity, the, the, the methodology itself is... It. Thanks for joining. Next on Squawk Pod, the existential threat of the rise of Amazon's Jeff Bezos to infinity and way beyond. One of the things that our founders uh, stayed up late at night sweating about was the concentration of power. Back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Up and Andrew, Q. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Osorkin, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kern. Amazon recently released a manifesto on a variety of issues on which it has faced criticism, including a minimum wage and also facial recognition technology. For a closer look at Amazon and its founder and CEO, Jeff Bezos, I want to welcome Frank Four. He's Atlantic Magazine's national correspondent. And he's the author of the magazine's current cover story, a profile of Jeff Bezos that's worth the time, folks, uh, I spent with it, uh, titled Jeff Bezos' Master Plan. And Frank spent more than five months speaking with current and former Amazon employees for the piece. And Frank, uh, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. I'll, for those who haven't read the piece, I'll, I'll ask you the question, but I know the answer to some degree already. <laughs> what was the biggest surprise for you in this reporting process? Because I think that you came to this with some preconceptions, dare I say, that changed in the, in the process. Right. So I've been a critic of the big technology companies. I've written a book that described them as an existential threat. And I walked away from the process still extremely concerned about the concentration of power within one corporation and within one man. But I think what surprised me was the extent to which my admiration for the company and fear were so tangled up with one another that when I look at the company, the thing that is so truly impressive is that one guy is able to press his values out through all 600,000 of his employees. And he's created this business that is, uh, that's spanning off in all these various different directions, which sometimes seem seemingly disconnected from one another. And yet, what is the thing that connects this massive, sprawling enterprise called Amazon together? It's that they all embody the values of Jeff Bezos. And that is both something to look at in awe and marvel at. And he may be the greatest CEO in the history of American business. But it's also something that's problematic because uh, one of the things that our founders uh, stayed up late at night sweating about was the concentration of power. And they worried about the concentration of power in the executive branch. And they worried about the concentration of power outside of government as well. So and, I, I hope yeah. he's a good guy. Well, that, well I was going to ask you two questions. <laughs> Did you walk away from this experience of reporting it thinking, OK, I like the values of this guy or not? I like some of his values. I didn't like some of the other values. I mean, I think the point is, is that you you look at something and I'll take I'll give you one example, which is space exploration, which right. is this is an area where the government has basically sat down. We're not really in the business of exploring space anymore. And here's a guy who, uh, from the time that he was in high school, had a vision of what space you, colonization. You quote his girlfriend, his high school girlfriend, yeah. saying the reason he wants to make all this money is so that he can go to space. 
Right. And that's the thing that he he's he's not especially open in talking about Amazon, but he's very open in talking about his company, Blue Origin, and what he wants to do. And it's it's a utopian vision for how we'll all live in these giant cylindrical tubes stationed between the moon and Earth. And um, and it's in response to this grave crisis that he sees when the Earth runs out of resources generations from now. And so he's chosen to to sell a billion dollars of Amazon stock each year in order to fund his utopian vision, which is great, except that there are all these questions that we should ask about what happens if he starts to realize his vision. And here's one guy using all of his money um, to set the terms by which we shape the future of the heavens, which so, Frank, is both. Here's, yeah. here's my question to you. Having now lived through this this reporting process and yeah. coming to this with the with some of the views that you had about breaking up big tech to begin with, has it changed your view? No. I mean, I, I, you know, and, and so uh, for starters, I think it should be said that um, when we talk about applying antitrust law to these companies, uh, there's a sledgehammer that we can take, but there are also more subtle things that we can do to deal with their power. For instance, uh, we've just been lax about reviewing mergers over time. And when you look at a company like Amazon, some of its growth is uh, organic and indigenous and, and stems from the creative genius of the people there. But a lot of times they're just simply buying potential competitors or buying their way into owning various verticals. And so I think without, you know, without even having to, get to, to, to think about what it would like to smash uh, Amazon apart, we could, we could more rigorously apply antitrust enforcement to the company. I also think if we, you know, I think that Eventually, Bezos, is, uh, who, is, who is seeing around corners, is going to break up his own company, um, that AWS exists as its own fantastically profitable business. There's no reason that it needs to be connected to Amazon, the e-retailer. And as he looks at uh, what's happening in uh, uh, politics, where there's this increasing bipartisan consensus that big tech is a problem, right. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's going to say, all right, fine. Is that, is that based on uh, uh, just a supposition? Is that based on people? No, I heard people, I heard people, I heard people who are, um, who, who are close to Bezos, uh, you know, throw that out there, not necessarily channeling him, but saying that that would be the obvious thing for him to well, do it, in the face it, of this. It follows what they did with headquarters, too. With yeah, exactly. Mark, like, forget it. Okay, fine. We'll take our ball and go home. Right, right. Well, you know, and I think uh, when you talk about that different headquarters, um, uh, I, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me, and it was a theme in my reporting, was looking at the reasons why they chose to locate outside of Washington, D.C. And you look at AWS and its growth, um, and you look at uh, the public sector is clearly this huge opportunity for Amazon that uh, they're they're going after it, not just by uploading uh, the federal government's cloud. They're trying to become a major vendor for the federal government, where the federal government buys water bottles and office seats um, from Amazon. Uh, they're selling facial recognition software to law right. enforcement. And so how is that effort going in a, uh, in, a, in a in a Trump administration, given some of the comments, obviously, that the president has made? that uh, have uh, been largely uh, critical of Jeff Bezos personally, if not the company as well? It's been a herky-jerky process. I mean, this Jedi contract at the Pentagon has been held up because of this animosity between Trump and Bezos. And I do think that when we step back, I think it's really interesting that we have these two foils because in some ways they represent divergent 
um, responses to the crisis in American democracy that Trump comes in and he's got his emotional populist appeal. And Bezos represents a different response, which is that when we look at Bezos, we say, all right, well, you know, rather than having this world governed by this emotional populism, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have this utopia of rules and technocracy that Bezos embodies? So, Frank, is the, is the space exploration gene linked to the billionaire gene? I mean, do you want to go? I don't want to. Do you want to go to space? I'm no. scared. Uh, no. No, they want to go, and they also have a billion dollars. Do you think it's a linkage, a gene linkage, or what the hell's with these guys, Branson I, I and, I, and Bezos and, and Musk and everything? They, I like it here. Well, look, I, I mean, I do think that there's something beautiful um, about exploring space and well, exciting about exploring space, but I don't want to. I don't want to ditch planet Earth. In terms of existence, it's <laughs> the it's one thing humans, I guess, can aspire to and have for gener- you know for thousands of years. I, I guess I get that, but it just. I just seem. Well, I, I, I want to let someone else do that. I think. I don't know. Maybe of that's... all the crises that we face right now as a species, I'm yeah. not sure that I think escaping from planet Earth ranks right. as my highest and, uh, and, concern. And no one's won a Malthusian bet yet. Yeah. Not one person has been paid off that's bet on on that Malthusian the thing that you described with Bezos. I mean, a couple hundred years. Who knows? Uh, I don't know what we'll run out of, but we're, we seem to have a. You know, maybe we'll go mine an asteroid if we run out of stuff. Uh, anyway. You going to say goodbye to Frank? I am going to say goodbye. That's the show for today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You have a drinking problem. I have a coffee you, problem. You, you haven't talked to... I have a coffee problem. You, you ha- <laughs> not a drinking problem. No, but it, isn't that... The show. That's the drink. Yeah, that's the drink. I spilled you, the you coffee. Haven't, you, haven't really co- the- you haven't really copped to a drinking problem, but I just watched it, and you were well, unable to do it. The problem was that the, the liquid <laughs> decided to go down my tie yeah. and face. It's a drinking problem. And it's a good kind of drinking problem to have. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.